So I'm going to uh, have a look at this passage, just three verses in Romans chapter 8. You know, one of the things that we've learnt from the bushfires, I don't know whether you learned this, but it's been on all the ads, is you need to have a fire plan in place. And in fact, we live in a fire zone. Who's got a fire plan in place? Yeah, look at all those people with a fire plan in place. We're told to do that because if you wait till the last moment, if you wait till the fire is on your doorstep to make a plan, then you're sunk because you won't make wise decisions. Well, the passage that we're looking at today is about how you can cope with the troubles and problems in life. But like your bushfire plan, you need to have this worked out beforehand. Because in the middle of pain and grief and suffering, the last thing people often want to hear is the message of this passage. Uh, I've often sat with people in the middle of grief and despair and problems and, uh, and I know they don't want to hear me say, don't worry, all things will work out for good. Because the last thing people want to hear, no, no, we need to have this stuff integrated into our thinking before disaster strikes. So we're looking at Romans 8, 28 to 30. And look at how it starts. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Notice... God works everything for good for those who love him. It's even more obvious in the original language, the original word order in the Greek is, to the ones loving God, everything works together for good. God does not work for everyone's good. It's conditional. It's just for the good of those who love him. This promise is for the good of those who love him. Now, Paul is always very careful with his words and his wording. He says God works. Let's see if I can get this to work now. It's on. Yep. No, can you see that? Yes, there it goes. God works in all things, not despite all things, The promise is not that God will take away our pain and our suffering and our problems. The promise is that he'll work in the middle of those things for our good. Now, as I look around, I see a whole lot of you are sort of getting towards my generation. You might remember Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, who became a quadriplegic after diving into shallow water as a 16-year-old. In her books, she explains why God did not answer her prayers for healing. What did happen for her was that her injury brought her to God and has made her a beacon of hope for all who suffer. She has turned her disability into a fantastic ministry worldwide. And this is what she says. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Now look how Paul describes those who love God. Back to the screen again, next slide. He calls them those who've been called according to his purpose. Notice there is no and there. It's not God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. No, no, those who love him are those who've been called according to his purpose. When you become a Christian, it's not a fluke. It's not just a chance 
thing that happens to you. It's not because maybe you're brought up in a Christian household. You become a Christian because you have been called according to God's purposes, according to his plans. And then Paul goes on to unpack what he means. He starts off with the word for. See it there? So he says, we know in everything God works for the good with those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For, so now this is the because. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We now step into the minefield. Predestination. Two main views here. Get your thinking caps on. I'm going to stretch you a bit this morning. There's what we call classical predestination or what some people call Calvinism. Uh, that's the view that it's God who makes us Christians. That God chooses us. He sets his love upon us. He gives us faith so that we then have the faith to choose him. He predestines us to choose him. The other view, called Arminianism, focuses on our free will. Uh, what happens in this view is that God looks into the future and he sees who are going to choose him and so before all that happens, he chooses them. And uh, the Arminians rely on the part of the passage that says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. See that? So they go, yeah, there here it is. God knew that we would choose him. He could look into the future because he's not bound by time and therefore he chooses us. And Arminians will say that's what the word predestination means here. I need to confess to you right here that I am a Calvinist. Uh, my problem with Arminianism is that if God chooses us because we choose him, then he's not making any choices. Uh, we are. We save ourselves by our faith. He is just recognising what we are making happen. Uh, there's no sense in which he is predestining anything. And so if Paul didn't mean predestined, why did he use the word? And predestined does not mean that we don't have a choice in the matter. See, people want to say, oh, you're either a free will person or you're a predestination person. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Happy to talk to you about it later, but it's not a case of one or the other. Um, it is a case of both those things happening. So what about that word for new? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. When the Bible uses the word to know somebody, it doesn't mean, oh, I know you. Um, Abraham knew his wife Sarah and she conceived and bore a child. This idea about knowing someone in the Bible is much more than, oh, yeah, I recognise you. It actually means that you, you have this, this relationship with the person. So have a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 where Peter talks about Jesus. He says, he, Jesus, was destined. The word in the original language was foreknown, but our translators have translated it destined. Before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of time for your sake. That does not mean God looked into the future, saw that Jesus would come in the flesh and said, therefore I'm going to make that happen. It's a nonsense, isn't it? No, no, the word foreknowledge means God... God knows and is bringing it about. You know, when you finally die, St Peter's not going to meet you at the gates of heaven and ask you whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist before he decides to let you in. That is not going to happen. The issue should not divide us. 
There are many, many fine Christian Bible teachers who are on both sides of the fence on this one. Two of my great heroes in the past, George Whitfield and John Wesley, contemporaries, both great evangelists of their day, uh, disagreed on this issue. Whitfield, who I think got it right, was a Calvinist, and Wesley was an Arminian. Both going to be in heaven, brothers and sisters. There's no need for this issue to divide us. So I'm going to leave it there. But look at what the end result of God's plan is, this plan. God's plan for you, look at it carefully there, is that if you are one of his people, you be conformed to the image of Jesus. One day, when Jesus returns, you will be seen not for who you've been, not for what you were with all your weaknesses and your foibles and your failures and your sins. No, you will be seen as God made you to be, as the woman God made you to be and as the man God made you to be. You will be perfected. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus. You will be like him. You will be his brothers and sisters. You will be remade. And Paul is making the point, God is going to do that. It is God who's going to do that. That is his plan for you and I if we are his children. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have repented and believed the gospel, it's because that is God's plan for you. And then Paul goes on. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So here's the process so far, ladies and gentlemen. You want a breather? You're right to go on. Let's go on. God foreknows us. That is, he sets his love upon us from the very beginning of time. And then he predestines us. He sets his love on us and he says, you're going to be mine. And then he, he calls us. That's when we get the chance to respond in faith. When he calls us. In the Bible, the word call is used in two different ways, just like we do today. The first, when God calls people, it's more like an invitation So in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, we're told God calls on everyone, God commands, the word is calls upon, everyone to repent. There, God's call, repent. But of course, not everybody does. That's why Jesus can say, for many are invited, the word again is called, for many are called, but few are chosen. You can be called by God and reject it. But here's the problem. In the passage we're looking at, the call is effective. Those whom God calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. That means those he calls, he converts. So there is a call that invites and there is a call that does something. Can you see? Two different sorts of ways the word call is used. And we do it the same way. Uh, A call has gone out for volunteers to join the rural fire service. A call has gone out. Not everyone's going to respond. But our Prime Minister has called up the Army Reserves. And that's not an invitation. They have to respond. Can you see, we use the word call in two different ways, and the Bible does too. So there is God's invitation, and there's God's what we call his effective call. And that's what he's talking about here. Because he calls them and then look what he does. 
He justifies them. Those whom he calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. So what does justify means? mean? Well, again, it's not going to happen this way. But imagine that I face God on the final day and he asks me to justify my behaviour in the way that I live my life. I want you to justify, Bruce, the way that you did not treat people the way you wanted to be treated. I want you to justify the fact that you didn't love me with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. I want you to justify that. And I'd be able to point to Jesus and his death in my place and say, he has justified me. He has justified my sin when he died in my place, taking my punishment for my sin and failures. Now, it's not going to happen like that because it's God who justifies us. Uh, God and the Father, the Father and the Son, we're, we're of one mind in this whole process, but that's just the way I'm trying to explain it. I am justified. I am declared not guilty. I'm declared righteous because of what Jesus did on the cross for me. That is justification. God says not guilty because of Jesus' death in my place. And lastly, it says God glorifies us. See that there? Those he justified, he also glorified. It's very interesting because our glorification is not going to happen until we're in heaven. And yet here it's in the past tense. Notice that? All those other things have happened in the past if you're a Christian. You've been predestined. You've been called. You've been justified. Now he says you've been glorified. But it hasn't happened yet. Why is it in the past tense? It's in the past tense because God's going to do it. And if God says he's going to do it, it's as good as done. That's why it's in the past tense. God says... I am, I am involved in this process from the very moment you start to think about me until the moment I glorify you in heaven. It is as good as done. I'm in charge of it all. See, there's a train of thought here. I hope you can see it. Christians are suffering. The Christians Paul writes to in Rome are suffering. We Punchy preached about that last week. We saw that. And they would have questions about how could a loving God let this happen to me? And so Paul tells them earlier on in this same chapter, there will be troubles, but one day that's all going to be behind you as God's people. Punchy last week. There is an incredible glory waiting for us that will make our present circumstances look like a bad dream. And even in the middle of those troubles, whatever they might be, even in the middle of them, God works in them to bring about your good. How do we know that? How do we know God's going to actually do that? Because he's in charge of the whole process. If you're a follower, it wasn't just because you made a choice to follow God. It's because God put his love upon you before the creation of the world. And God gave you enough faith to be able to choose Jesus Christ. And if God's got that process going, he's going to bring it to completion. And he's going to make sure that everything that happens to you, he will use for your good. You know, the beauty of this is it doesn't depend on us. You know, I love God, but do I love him enough? Doesn't matter. If I love God, it's because God's in the process. It's because he's called me. He's done it. He will bring it to completion. God works in all things for our good. And you know, there's a great example of that in Paul himself. He talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about what he calls his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. 
Um, it sounds like it was some sort of physical ailment, but of course those who are committed to the fact that if you have enough faith you won't be sick say no, it wasn't a physical ailment, it was something else. Whatever it was, it was pretty nasty. This thorn in the flesh, because Paul calls it a messenger of Satan. Got that? Whatever this thing was that he had in his body, he calls it a messenger of Satan. He said, I prayed to God three times to take it away from me. And look what he says. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See what he says? This is a messenger for Satan, but God's working in it to bring about his purposes in my life for my good. It's not a good thing. It's a messenger of Satan, but God's in it. So the same thing in that story from Joseph we had. Thank you, Lisa, for that introduction. That was very well put. That story of Joseph, sold by his brothers into slavery because they can't stand his guts, uh, wrongly imprisoned because he's accused of a rape that he never did, spends years in jail. Can you imagine that? Spending years in jail for something you know you're innocent of. Can you imagine the heartache? Can you imagine what that would do to your faith in God? What a horrible, horrible place to put him. Why would God do that? And then finally, through circumstances, Joseph becomes number two in Egypt. And when his brothers come from a drought-ridden country to get food in Egypt, Joseph reveals himself to them. What does Joseph say? You sold me into slavery. You meant it for evil. But God used it for good. God used those years of imprisonment for good. Wrong accusation of rape for good. Being a slave in Egypt for good. To save his people. God works together in all things for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. We don't know, you may never know, how God will use your grief or your terminal illness or your relationship mess-ups or your problems or your loneliness or your disability. We don't know how God will use those for good, but he says he will. Trust him. Because he's in that process from beginning to end. He is the Lord of all creation. He set his love upon you before the beginning of time and he will finish it up by taking you into glory with him and glorifying him. Brothers and sisters, before some of you will be in disaster right now. But for most of us, before disaster strikes, get that as part of your thinking. Make it part of your world view. Read stuff that helps you to understand how God can work in the circumstances that you're going through to bring about good. John the Baptist, God brought about good through his death. Because think about it for a moment. On the moment of John the Baptist's death, the man who, who Jesus says was the greatest man who ever lived up to that point, the moment of his death, what happens? He's rewarded. He goes to heaven and he's glorified. So even in death, even in death, brothers and sisters, God's plans work out for our good. Let's pray. Father, what a mighty God you really are who have 
has provided all that for us despite the way that we fail. Despite our inadequacies and our unloveliness. You set your love upon us before the beginning of time. And you've done all that is necessary to glorify us in the future. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in deep anguish right now. And I ask that your Holy Spirit will comfort their hearts and strengthen them with these words. That you are working for their good in the midst of all that is going on in their lives. And Father, help the rest of us to support and encourage and do all that is necessary to show your love to others through us. Amen.